According to CBSNews.com, which is taken from Forbes' top 20 billionaires of 2018, talking about poverty-proof living, this, this poll was taken by, uh, from Forbes and put on CBSNews.com. These are the richest people in the world, the top five richest people in the world. Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, age 54, his net worth is $112 billion, with a B, dollars. Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, age 62, his net worth is $90 billion. Warren Buffett, CEO of Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate, his net worth is $84 billion. Bernard Arnault of France, he, he is 69 and his net worth is $72 billion. And then Mark Zuckerberg, co-founder and chairman and CEO of Facebook, his net worth is $71 billion. I, I would take, I think, a, a, a venture, a guess, to say that these people have probably poverty-proofed their life. There, there is no way, at least from the world standpoint, that they're ever going to fall into poverty with a net worth like that. And this morning, I'm going to let everybody know that will listen to what uh, I have to say, to what I'm going to preach on, and if you apply what I take from the Word of God, I'm going to guarantee you that you will be rich for the rest of your life. I'm going to give you some principles for a poverty-proof life that you can apply today, and at this point, I think I've got everybody's attention. There's no catch. You will be rich the rest of your life if you follow this. There's no trick. It's available to everybody, and you can immediately take advantage of your investments. And I'm going to give you one statement that is a guiding principle in helping you become rich beyond belief. Here it is. This is the key and becoming rich beyond belief. To be rich, you must have the right values. If you are going to poverty-proof your life, you've got to have the right values. When it comes from the standpoint of the world, these individuals have the right values to make sure that they have a poverty-proof life. Again, from the standpoint of the world. And there are three values in this portion of Scripture that I read that will guarantee that you'll be rich. See, the difference is, do you want to be rich towards the things of the world? Or do you want to be rich, as Scripture says, towards God? See, the, the sad... Reality is that most people, most Christians would say, yeah, I want to be rich towards God because they know that's the right thing to say. But in all reality, 
if we can just live a comfortable Christian life and have everything of the world, man, that's what I want. If I can make sure that I never have to struggle financially and still have a comfortable Christian life. I mean, I'm not going to be, you know, one of those really wayward Christians. I mean, I'm going to uh, show up on Sundays and I'll be here uh, Sunday night and I'll show up Wednesday nights and I'll do my thing. I'll give some and, I mean, I'll do my thing. I mean, I'm going to look like a decent Christian. But, man, if I can have, if I can have that plus have everything that the world could offer and make sure that I never got to struggle financially, guess what? Most Christians would opt for that. Most Christians would say, I'll take that. But if I said to you, you can be rich towards God, and you can be rich beyond belief, but you are going to struggle financially the rest of your life. You're going to have a hard time making ends meet. You're going to have a hard time paying your bills. You're going to have a hard time wondering where your next meal is going to come from. You're going to have a hard time wondering if you're going to be able to clothe your family or not. You're going to be wondering about those things. It's going to be, it's going to put you on your knees. Most Christians would say, you know what, I'll take the former over the latter. Why is that? Because we live for vanity. You say, how can I be rich towards God? See, let me back up and say, the only thing that's going to matter when this is all said and done is if you're rich towards God. That's the only thing that's going to matter. You remember when you bought that brand new car 10 years ago? And now it's not so new, is it? I mean, how you babied that thing. I mean, you did everything to, I mean, it looks so good. And now it's start, got some rust on it. You know, uh, you know, or that furniture. You remember when you first got that or that new outfit or whatever? You know what I'm telling you? You know what I want you to think of? That's exactly what's going to happen to everything in this world. It's all going to wear away. And by the way, Solomon here in Ecclesiastes says, you can have it all, but you're not taking any of it with you. You're not taking any of it with you. So guess what? You could be the richest person in here today, and there is somebody that is the richest person in here today. And I don't begrudge you for your richness. The Bible doesn't say it's sin to be wealthy. But if you've got enough money, help me pave that parking lot, would you? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Folks, I've been working this parking lot thing for five years and nobody's come forward yet. Come on. I just need one check for one million. Just give me a million. That's it. It'll be taken care of. Mm. but you can have it all and when you stand before God if you're not rich before him you're going to wish that you heeded this message you say how can I be rich towards God number one you worship God correctly you know what that implies there's a wrong way to worship God you worship God correctly. The Bible says in Ephesians, Ephesians, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 1, to keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. 
Solomon makes his way to the house of God, to the temple, that great building that he had built for the worship of God. And when he gets to the temple, he takes time to observe the worshipers. There are those that are coming and going and and they're praying and praising God. They're giving sacrifices. They're making vows. We read that. They're making promises to God. I want you to turn over to Isaiah chapter 29. But Solomon sees that there's a problem. I mean, they are doing what seems to be all the right things. They look the part. They look like they are worshiping God. They, They look like they are serving God, they look exactly the way a worship of God should look. But he observed that they're not sincere in their worship. Look at Isaiah chapter 29, if you would, in verse 13. Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13. The issue was the sincerity of their worship. Take a look, Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips to honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the precepts of men, but have removed their heart far from me. You know what he's saying? You can... Talk the talk, but just because you say that you are a worshiper of God does not mean that you are sincere in your heart about that worship. See, you can, you can come to church like you've come this morning and your heart be totally distracted by everything else that's going on in your life. Listen, folks, this is not the time to be thinking about everything else in your life. This is the time to be focusing on the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Come into his presence that you have the privilege and I have the privilege. Listen, this is a privilege. There are countries around the world that they cannot meet like this. And we have a privilege to come together corporately to be able to worship the God of all creation. But when our hearts are not sincere, God says, man, you know the right things to say but your heart's not in it. See, the Bible tells us that we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's one thing just to know truth, and we can recite truth, but if there's not the spirit, the feeling, the, the, the affections, the desire that you, you've come in here and you say, I want to worship God Almighty. I'm not concerned about what everybody else is doing. I'm not concerned about what everybody else is wearing. I'm not concerned about how everything else looks. I'm not concerned about anything else that's going on. I've come to be able to worship God Almighty. My heart is in tune with Him. That's true worship. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8, this people draw nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Sincere worship is not based upon what you say because we have the ability to say anything. Sincere worship is based upon the condition of your heart. And Solomon noticed that many of these worshipers were not sincere in their worship You say, well, what was their sin? How do you know if you're sincere in your worship? How could he see that they were not sincere in their worship? What was their sin? They were robbing God of the reverence and honor that he alone deserved. 
They were robbing God of the reverence and honor that he alone deserved. See, the issue is that they, that was that they were just going through the motions. They said all the right things, but their heart was not in the right place. Solomon, right away, in the very beginning, he says, keep thy foot. You know what he's saying? He's saying, he gives an admonition. He's saying, we would say it this way in the 21st century. They say, you better watch your step. You're going in the house of God. You, you better watch your step. You, you better make sure. See, the worship, true worship of God is to be from a devoted heart, listen, and yielded wills. Sincere worship has to do with a devoted heart and sincere wills. That's the key. Or a, we would say it this way, a submissive or yielded will. Loyal hearts and surrendered wills. Let me ask you this morning, where's your loyalty lie? Well, Jesus Christ. Then let me ask you this. How much time do you spend with him throughout the week? See, your loyalty to someone is really determined by how much time you're willing to spend with them. How much time did you spend with the Lord this week? How about your will? It has to do with your, your, your loyalty your, 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 and your will. What about your will? When God's telling you to do one thing, but you do something else. See, that's true worship when we have a loyal heart and surrendered wills. You know what will happen if you have known sin in your life and you go to worship God? God tells us, Psalm 50, I'm not going to read it for lack of time, but Psalm 50, God tells us that God will bring judgment upon your life. You know what he's saying? When you walk into the house of God, when you and I, when we walk into the house of God, I'm not saying we ought to pretend and we ought to, that we're just supposed to have vain repetitions and stuff like that. But when we walk in the house of God, we better make sure that we're right with God. When we're coming to worship God, we better make sure that we are clean and pure before him. Why? Because Psalm 50 plainly tells us that if we try and just go worship God and go through the motions, that God will bring judgment upon our life. Solomon looks at three aspects of worship. Take a look at the first one if you're taking notes here. The offering, verse 1. The offering. In verse 1, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be ready, more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools for they consider not that they do evil. The offering. Today, we don't collect animal sacrifice. We don't do animal sacrifice like they did back then unto the Lord. This is because, you say, well, why don't we do that? Because of what Christ has done on the cross for our sins. See, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for us. See, with, with this, in the Old Testament, what they had to do, they had to continually sacrifice over and over and over and over again. But when Jesus Christ came, he lived a perfect life for 33 and a half years you know, the more I dwell on that, the more I think about, did Jesus Christ live a perfect life for 33 and a half years? That just blows my mind. I can't live a perfect life for 33 and a half minutes, let alone 33 and a half years. 
that he lived a perfect life and then he died the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me upon the cross. And not that he just died. Had he just died, he would not be able to claim being the savior of the world. But Jesus Christ not only died, but he rose again, the Bible says, according to the scriptures, three days later. And so though today we don't bring uh, animal sacrifices because what Jesus Christ has done for us, today believers give offering or offer to God in these ways. In Philippians 4.18, we're not going to turn there, but you can write it down. Philippians 4.18, we offer our money as an offering unto the Lord. So is your worship sincere? If you're going to be rich in this life, if you're going to have a poverty-proof life, are you worshiping God correctly when it comes to your wealth, your money? How about uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? How about our bodies? We worship God through our bodies. Uh, now in our society today, we hear, well, this is my body. I can do with it whatever I want. And we see even Christians going that route. The simple fact of the matter is, friends, the Bible says that you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. It's not our body. He was the one who created us. We did not create ourselves. We don't have a right to do with our bodies whatever we want. We are to offer our bodies as a sacrifice, as a living sacrifice to unto the Lord. That, hey, that guess what? These hands, these hands should only be to hold one woman. These hands ought to be to be able to work hard and produce an honest living. These feet are meant to only walk into one house to be with one family. These legs were to carry me to places of honor and not ill repute. See, I am to offer an offering of my body unto the Lord. How about my prayers? Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2. My prayers are to be an offering unto the Lord. As we come into the presence of the Lord, we say, we want to thank you, God, that we can come into your presence. We thank and praise you as we come into your courts with praise and into your gates with thanksgiving, those type of things. We offer that unto the Lord, and we praise him, and that is an offering unto the Lord. And how about our hearts? Psalm 51, 17, the Bible says that a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Listen, my friend, you and I, we come into, we come into the presence of God with a proud heart. This is what God says. He, God says that he stiff arms people that come to me, the proud, that come to me with a proud heart. He resists the proud but gives grace unto the humble. See, the scariest place for a Christian to be is to be in the place where you think that you are strong in and of yourself. The greatest place that a Christian can be is in total weakness and total dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. When you realize that you have no strength of your own, when you realize that you have no uh, dependence but Jesus Christ alone, when you realize that your only hope is Jesus Christ, when you realize that he is your only strength, when you realize that he is the only rock, when you realize that he is your only protector, your only shield, your only God, your only Lord, he is the warrior of all warriors, when you realize that he is the strength of your life, when you get to that point, you come with a broken and a contrite heart saying, God, I need you and I'm offering myself once again, unto you as a living sacrifice, as an offering. In verse 2 and 3, we see here, be not rash with thy mouth, not only the offering, uh, uh, those offerings that I mentioned, be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and thou upon the earth, therefore let thy words be few. 
If you're going to worship God properly, correctly, there'll be the offering, then there'll be prayers. You know, prayer is one of the greatest, as I mentioned before, prayer is one of the greatest privileges that a believer has. The blessings of coming to the King of kings and Lord of lords and laying out our requests, our burdens, our praises at the feet of Jesus is the highest honor. If we're not careful, there will be a carelessness about our prayers. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 17, the Bi- uh, verse 7, the Bible says, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions. The Bible tells us that when we pray, we ought to be careful about using hasty words and about too many words. See, but in order to pray right, friends, you've got to have the right heart. I mean, do you just, you start to pray, do you just start to rush into the presence of God, or do you take time to be able to think, before I come into the presence of God, I must, I must think upon and I must, I must meditate for a few minutes upon who I am coming into the presence of. I am coming into the presence of the creator of all the universe. He just spoke it, and it came into being. So many times we rush into our prayer time because what do we want to do? We want to check it off that we got it done. See, I prayed. I'm a good Christian. That's not true worship. That's exactly what Solomon's talking about. We're honoring him with our mouth, but our hearts are far from us, uh, far from him. Listen, God does not only want to hear our words, but he wants to see our heart and the affections that are aroused for him and the desire that we have for him. And sometimes our prayers are no better than those who just give vain repetition. Is there a reverential fear of God of the awesomeness of God when you approach him in prayer. But not only do I see the offering, the prayer, but in verses four through seven, you can look at it, and we won't read it for lack of time, but verses four through seven, you'll see uh, the promise, the, the promise. There is no requirement in the Christian life. All right, let me say it this way. There is no requirement by God in the Christian life that in order to worship him, we must make vows or promises to him. There is no requirement. But then what is the purpose? What is the purpose of making a promise to God? What is the purpose of making a vow to God? First, you must understand that it should be led of God. But the reason for it is because it shows our devotion to him. It's not to be accepted by him, but it shows our devotion to him. When we make a promise or when we make a vow to him. And it shows that we are willing to do something, even something that may be uncomfortable in our lives, to show that we are totally devoted to him and him alone. See, Solomon gives us two warnings when it comes to making a promise to God. He says, don't lie to God. What is that? How how do you do that? Making a promise to God without any intention of keeping it. Don't lie to God. 
And then secondly, he gives us a warning about making a promise to God. Don't procrastinate in fulfilling the promise and hoping that you might be able to get out of the promise. The point is that God hears what we say and he will hold us accountable for the promises that we make to him. Listen, you know what one of the traps of, of people, this is a trap, we, we do this like, the, the, we do this all the time. For example, beginning of the year, January, we go around, we say, hey, I'm starting to go to the gym. I'm gonna work out this year, I'm gonna lose X amount of pounds, I'm gonna gain this much muscle, mass, and yeah. We believe that saying equates doing. We do, don't we? It's like now that, that we've, we've said it, okay. Just because you said it doesn't mean that you've done it. See, the point is that when we make a promise to God, when we vow a vow to God to show our devotion to him, don't procrastinate it. You, you need to fulfill that promise. God does not take that lightly. See, to worship God in this way of just thinking that we can get away with this type of stuff is not true worship. Let me ask you, are you robbing God? Or let me say it this way. Really, are you robbing yourself of the riches of God that he wants to bestow upon you because you're not worshiping him correctly? You want to be rich? You want to have a poverty-proof life? You'll worship God correctly. Secondly, verses 8 through 9, we see that you treat others correctly. You treat others correctly. This is talking about the oppression of the poor. We don't hear much about this, this type of preaching, and we're ta it's talking about a perverting of judgment. It's talking about uh, really um, bad governmental decisions. Solomon now moves to the aspect, uh, the social aspect of being rich. He leaves the house of God, and now he goes to the, the house of government. So he goes from the house of God to the house of government, and, and he steps inside the maybe city hall or the government building, and, and he observes the oppression of the poor by corrupt politicians. The politicians were using their authority to, to help themselves. We would say it this way. They were, they were lining their pockets and not serving others. Listen, lest we forget, the reason that we have people in political office is not for their benefit, but for our benefit. They're there to represent the people. And Solomon walks into the government house and he sees that there are some corrupt politicians there and they're, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're helping themselves to the riches. You know what Solomon says? He goes, don't be surprised by this. We're often surprised. Well, not now. It doesn't seem that way. But before, we used to really be surprised by corrupt politicians, weren't we? But Solomon's already told us in his word, don't be surprised by this. And this isn't a stamp of approval of the way that these, these government officials were treating the poor and the way that they were using the poor to be able to help their own agenda. He's not, he's not approving it. What he's actually doing is he's, put, he's making an indictment on the human heart. See, absolute power corrupts absolutely, does it not? And it'd be ideal to have an honest government, an efficient government, 
but we understand that the sin nature in all of us, left unchecked, will put personal benefits above the needs of others. Solomon's not saying either that it's not good to have an organized government because it's better to have an organized government than to have anarchy. We understand that. But just because the government oppresses the poor in a hateful way and uses them to line their pockets does not mean that we as Christians should turn a blind eye to those under oppression. Friends, this morning, I wholeheartedly believe in the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ and how he sets us free from the oppression of sin, but I also believe that the gospel that we share should help the physically oppressed. Hey, Solomon's talking about how we treat others. I want you to take letter A, God's view of the oppressed. I want you to take a look at Proverbs chapter 14. Turn there if you would, please. Proverbs chapter 14. You know, many times we hear about preaching of the gospel, and we ought to. That's what a church should be. But there also ought to be some preaching of Christian social values and the way God sees things from his standpoint. And let me ask you, how are we supposed to look at the world? Are we supposed to look at it from our standpoint or from God's standpoint? Well, we're supposed to look at things from God's standpoint. And God has much to say on the oppressed. God's view of the oppressed. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31. Take a look here. He that oppresseth the poor reproacheth his maker. But he that honoreth him hath mercy on the poor. Proverbs 19, 17. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord. And that which he hath given, will he pay him again? Psalm chapter 72 and verse 4, the Bible says, He shall judge the poor of his people, he shall save the children of the needy, and he shall break in pieces the oppressor. Proverbs twenty-two sixteen. God goes on to say, he says, He that oppresses the poor to increase riches, and he that giveth to the rich shall surely come to want. Psalm 146 verse 7 says, which ex executeth judgment for the oppressed, which giveth food to the hungry, the Lord looseth the prisoner. The, poor, the point is here this morning, what I want you to get uh, uh, in your heart and your mind is that God takes notice of the poor and of the oppressed. He does not view the poor as the world views the poor. He takes notice of them. But what about our responsibility? We see letter A, God's view of the oppressed, our responsibility to the oppressed. Do you know that God has made it so that different people have different worldly possessions? God has made it that way. In his divine providence, for one reason or the other, people have differences in financial means. The Bible tells us that the poor shall never cease out of the land, according to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. So we're never going to solve the problem of the poor. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't help. Jesus said that the poor you'll always have with you in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 11. And Solomon is telling us here in Ecclesiastes, if we're going to be rich, we've got to worship God correctly but then we have to treat others correctly. And what he's saying is to harass and oppress the poor because of their low condition that they are in is to forget that all men are made in the image of God. 
And it is, to, it is to question the providence or the will of God in that individual's life. Hey, friends, let me tell you something here. At Open Bible Baptist Church, I don't care if, if uh, uh, Zuckerberg were here or Bill Gates were here. And then I don't care if the, the poorest of poor walk through those doors. Every single person that walks through those doors ought to be treated with the same kindness, graciousness, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It should not matter why, because every individual is made in the image of God. And if we despise the poor the way the world despises the poor, we are no longer different from the world. We are just like the world, and we are not exemplifying the love of Christ to the world in loving the poor. See, too many times we have a Christian caste system. But last time I checked, my friends, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Every single one of us came as poor sinners, and that's all we are, and that's all we'll ever be in sight of the Lord Jesus, except for the Lord Jesus Christ coming to save us. Had it not been for Christ, you'd be still poor. But because of Christ, we're rich towards God. See, it's Christ that puts the duty of aiding the poor upon those who claim to be Christians. Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. I want you to hear this, please. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Verse 45 says, Then he shall answer them, saying, Verily, verily, uh, verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not, to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. Listen, to minister unto the poor in all actuality is to minister unto the Lord. This is great riches in the sight of God. To be rich, to have a poverty-proof life, you'll worship God correctly, you will treat others correctly, and then lastly, verses 10 through 17, you'll treat money correctly. Solomon's gone from the house of God to the government house. Now he's coming to your house. He goes back to discussing money once again. In chapters, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we saw that, that he discussed money. And he's bringing it up once again. It's not because he didn't have anything else to say and he had to make sure he had a certain amount of chapters in here. No, it's because there was so much to say about money. And secondly, because too many people have the wrong view of money. Listen, too many people have the wrong view of money, including Christians. See, they believe the illusion that money can do certain things, and therefore they rob themselves of the blessings that God has for them. But in order to be rich in this life towards God, you must know the value of money and you must know how to treat money Letter A, you know that money does not bring satisfaction. Money does not bring satisfaction. Was it not the Beatles who said, I can't get no satisfaction? I think they might have had a little bit of money. You never thought you'd hear the Beatles quoted from the pulpit of Open Bible, did you? The great theologians, the Beatles. <laughs> 
You know money can't bring satisfaction, but what happens? Many times there are too many people that treat money like a God. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I'm glad I'm getting some amens on this money stuff. That's good. I got a parking lot. (laughs) They do. They treat it like a God. You say, what do you mean? They do everything they can to get it. They serve money instead of money serving them. You say, Pastor, don't you feel a little inhibited about talking about money? About all these people. No, I was brought up under it, you know, for 43 years. That's all I heard. Every message with preacher had to do something with tithing and giving. I don't care if we're preaching on the last coming, you know. You want to get all you can in before Christ comes back, you know. No, I'm not embarrassed about talking about money. And I'm going to tell you why. Jesus spoke more on money than he did any other topic. I'm in good company. Why aren't you embarrassed about talking about money? Because I know how we are consumer-driven. We are consumer-driven. How we love all our stuff. And we need more talk on money so that we can get our hearts that are attached to money and get them attached to God. Last time I checked, it was God that gave you the ability to get your money. And once they get a certain amount of money, this is what we do. They start finding security in money when our security is supposed to be in God. And that's not, that's not only true of unbelievers, but it's true of believers as well. The Bible tells us the person who loves money will not be satisfied no matter how much they have. You say, you mean to tell me that I'd never be satisfied if I had $113 billion, that I was the richest person in the world? No, you would not. You say, yeah, try me. Bezos, or Bezo, however you pronounce his last name, the richest man in the world, $112 billion. I'm telling you right now, if he doesn't know Jesus Christ, he's not satisfied. You say, how can you say that? How can you be so definitive? Because, my friends, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every grandma, every uh, grandpa, we were created to have satisfaction in one thing and one thing only, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if earthly things could fulfill your heart, then why is there still a longing? Because it can't. You know that money will not bring satisfaction. But also the second thing you understand is that you know money doesn't solve all problems. In verse 11 you see that. It's amazing, isn't it? You ever, you ever see those people that think that money solves all problems? Now, there's no denying that we need a certain amount of money to live on. We do. But even in that, if you just trust the Lord, He will provide for you. But money's not the cure for all the problems of life. How about those who have won the lottery? You know, they go from having nothing to having everything. They went from a basic lifestyle and meager means to having a great deal of money. What you'll find is that many of those, many of them, after winning the lottery, encountered more problems in life after winning than before. And what's also interesting is that when you study this out and you look it up, you'll find that, that within five years of winning the lottery, there were those who were claiming bankruptcy. 
verse 11 reveals a truth that many who come into great wealth are afraid. What do you mean? They're, they're afraid that, uh, of, of different things. They're afraid that their family and friends start showing up to enjoy the prosperity that one has. You'll, you, let me tell you something. You come into money, you're going to have more family and more friends than you ever realized that you had. You said, how do you know that? Well, take, take a look, if you will, in verse 11. When goods are increased, they are increased that eat them. And what good is it there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? You know what he's saying there? Guess what? No wonder those people are afraid. It's true. The Bible says it. They get all this money, then all their friends start showing up. And, all the, and it says that the owner of the money, he's just sitting there watching all his money go away because they're eating it all up. It's like a teenage boy. They eat you out of house and home. You know, there's never enough food in the refrigerator. It's like they got two hollow legs. They just keep eating and eating and eating. See, when you treat money correctly, you'll know that it will not solve all your problems. Letter C, you know that money doesn't calm your nerves. Money doesn't calm your nerves. Take a look at verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat a little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. You know what the Bible's saying? That just because you have money is no guarantee that you're going to have peace of mind. It's not going to cause you to be able to have a good night's sleep. How many in here found that the older you get, the harder it is to get a good night's sleep? Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah, tell me about it. I know. Aren't you so glad when you get up and you're rested? It's like, man, that is a blessing from the Lord. Yeah, I'm, fi I'm finding out. Before I, used to, man, I remember one time when I was in Bible college. I fell asleep on concrete steps. I was waiting for dinner at the line, and, and I just laid down, and I woke up, and people are walking over me. I, was, I could sleep anywhere. Now, I got to make sure my bed's right, the temperature's right, my pillow's right, all this right, my covers are right, all that. I mean, hmm. you're laughing because you know it's true. You do the same thing. But the Bible says just because you have money doesn't mean you're going to get a good night's sleep. Solomon says, that he observed that the man who works hard will sleep well, whether he's got little or much. It's the rich man that worries and is up all night and worrying about his stocks and his bonds and if this is up and that is down. You know that J, uh, John D. Rockefeller almost ruined his life because of his wealth, almost ruined his life. At the age of 53 in 1916, at the age of 53, he was the world's only billionaire. That's somewhat debated. They say that possibly, but some websites say he was. Some say that was Henry Ford a little bit later. He was earning about a million dollars a week. Now listen to this. But the reality is that he was a very sick man. He was living on crackers and milk and could not sleep because of worry. It was not until he started to treat money correctly and give his money away that his health radically changed. He ended up living to celebrate his 97th birthday in 1937. In total, he ended up giving over, uh, away over 50, uh, $550 million. You know what he learned? He learned that money could not give him peace of mind. It doesn't calm your nerves. And then letter D, you know money doesn't bring security. Verses 13 through 17, money doesn't bring security. The theologian Martin Luther said this, God permits the very rich in which people trust 
to bring about the ruin of those who own them. Mm. He's saying, those who put their trust in riches, those who trust in riches, that's going to be, God uses that to bring the ruin of them. How many of you here, you know this, true, money can be here today and gone tomorrow. Just remember the stock market, what, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah. And in this, in this passage of scripture, we don't have time to read it, but there are a picture of two types of people. The first one is one who tries to hoard all his wealth. It's like the, the rich man in, in the Gospels, in Matthew, where he says, man, I got great increase. I'm going to tear down my barns, and I'm going to build more and build bigger barns, and I'm going to have more increase. And God looks at him and says, thou fool, this night thy soul is going to be required of you. The Bible tells us that he died. Now who's got all your money, your kids? And they're fighting all over it. So the one who was hoarding all his wealth and he ruins himself in the process. The second one is the one who made unsound investments. He took a gamble and he lost it all and there was nothing to pass down to his family. Listen, friends, this morning you can have, you can have millions of dollars to be able to pass down to your family. But I'm going to tell you that's not the greatest thing that you can pass down to your family. The greatest thing that you can pass down to your family is a godly heritage. Because that's the only thing that will bring security. That's the only thing that brings stability. That, that's the only thing that will keep you when the winds of life blow against you. And he goes on to say, he goes, guess what? You're not going to be able to take it with you. Listen to this. One day, listen, all your wealth will be lost. And you're going to have to leave it all behind. So what's the purpose for living for money? It cannot and will not bring security. In Colossians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, Solomon doesn't stop there. He says, but I want you to enjoy the things that God has given to you. Wait a second. <laughs> You're just going through this whole message and you've told us we got to worship God correctly, we've got to treat others correctly, we have to treat money correctly. And you give us all this stuff that we shouldn't be doing, and this is the way that we should worship, this is the way we should treat people. And, and now you're ending up, Solomon, and you're telling us that we should enjoy all this that God's given us. Yeah. Okay, Pastor, you got to connect this for me. So you need to remember this. God has given me some things to enjoy for the time being. Remember that. God has given me some things to enjoy for the time being. I have this wealth to give away to help the kingdom of God. I have this wealth to give away to help the kingdom of God. I have this wealth to give away to be able to help the poor. I must remember that I'm never going to be able to take it with me. And then the last thing, if you're going to live a poverty-proof life, 
I'm headed for eternity. Therefore, I should travel light. I'm headed for eternity. Therefore, I should travel light. To be rich beyond belief, my friend, is to have the right values. And those values are worship God correctly, treat God correctly, treat money correctly, and this will create a poverty-proof life.